Today we continue in our new study through the Gospel of Luke, uh, beginning to dip our toes into the narrative portion of Luke's Gospel. Uh, In chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, last week after I mentioned uh, not knowing how long it might take us to get through this Gospel, uh, someone encouraged me by telling me about uh, a study that they've been going through and how enriched they have been by reading through uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones's 60 sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. So I decided today we're really just going to cover the first half of verse 5. <laughs> That's a joke, thank you. Uh, today, verses 5 through 25, uh, we're going to take uh, narrative portions as they come to us, and even though this is a large portion, it is one unit together. So uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25 today. You can find that on page 855, if you picked up an ESV on the way in today, reading about uh, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Now, before we go to God's Word and hear it, please join me uh, as we pray to the Lord of the harvest uh, to speak to us. Let's pray. O gracious and great Lord and God, we would see Christ. So we desire, as we come to your word, that you would show us our Savior. Even as we examine the ministry and the calling of John the Baptist from before he was formed in the womb, and as you filled him with your spirit, the way that you spoke to his godly and blameless parents, O Lord, speak to us and prepare our hearts. Set us and our focus on Christ Jesus just as you were doing for your people millennia ago through the ministry of John the Baptist. So we pray that you would do in us, make us a people prepared for yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. 
who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me. In the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach, among people. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Well, the passage before us is a chronicle of waiting. It begins with a couple, this godly and blameless couple, this couple who had waited all their lives long for the gift of a child. They'd waited so long that it was not really any use waiting anymore. No use waiting for parenthood when you're old enough to be a great-grandmother. No use waiting for something that everyone knows is never going to happen. But then the passage ends with waiting all over again. A renewed sense of patience. A husband who is humbled and waiting in silence. And a wife who is rejoicing and waiting in seclusion. Both of them waiting. Against all nature. Against all odds, against all reason, waiting in faith for the promises of the Lord. Folks, you don't have to look very far in God's Word to recognize that God's people are awaiting people. We have a whole book here, 66 books actually, of of heroism and wisdom and prophecy and, and might and power and gospel message, but we neglect sometimes to account for how much waiting there is in the pages between Genesis and Revelation. Indeed, how much waiting there has been since Revelation. And we pray, Amen, come Lord Jesus, and we wait. We wait like the people waited in Egypt, the Lord's deliverance. We wait the way Abraham waited for the land to become his. We wait the way generations after Isaiah waited for a son to be born and for the government to be upon his shoulders. God's people are awaiting people. The vast majority of our lives and our faith is spent stuck in the middle, looking back to God's faithfulness and looking forward to His promises and waiting and waiting and waiting. There's a word in this passage for God's waiting people. It's a word that meets us and comforts us and reminds us that even though we may wait, God's timing is always perfect. And even though he may tarry, God's deliverance is never really delayed. Now the first thing that grabs us as we walk through this narrative uh, is the longing that we find in Zechariah and Elizabeth. We spoke last week briefly about the fact that what Luke wants for us is to be captivated by the reality of all these things that he's writing. And so he's working a certain transparency into his narrative. He's adding the details of historicity into all the things that he's writing so that you would know and be assured that these things actually happened. And so he speaks to us of details like Herod, the king 
of Judea. And he talks about the divisions of the priest and the casting of lots and all the mundane details of what happened in the temple. And there are all of these tiny little things and, and details that he sprinkles in there. But the detail that ought to grab you in this passage and tell you that this is actually something that happened, that speaks of reality in Luke's, uh, Luke's account, happens in verses 6 and 7. When he points to Zechariah and to Elizabeth, and he says they were both righteous before God. They weren't sinless, of course. They were sanctified. They were godly people. They loved and delighted in God's law. They were righteous before God. They were sincere in their faith and their walk. They were blameless, and yet they had no child. And it begins with this longing, these blameless people before the Lord, and yet barren. It's a small thing, really, but it's the stuff of reality. If you were fabricating a story, this is not how you would begin. If all you wanted was to get people to join your cause and to follow after what you were doing, you would paint this picture in much broader strokes and much starker contrast. And you give them very clear cause and effect. If you want to live the good life, simply follow the Lord and everything will work out. And that's not how it begins. We find Zechariah and Elizabeth blameless, yet barren. A make-believe story would have begun with Zechariah and Elizabeth blameless and bountiful. That's what everybody expects because that's what the Lord, quite frankly, has promised. Psalm 128, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Isn't this what God has promised? And indeed it has. And that means that there is a double anguish for Zechariah and Elizabeth. They have lived all their adult lives bearing the burden of infertility. They longed to hold a child of their own and to raise a family before the Lord. Not only had they carried the sadness of a childless home their entire lives, but they also carried what Elizabeth calls later in verse 25 a disgrace. She calls it a reproach among people. And that reproach came when they gathered together with the people of God and it happened in sideward glances and small whispers wonder what they did. They look nice, but I wonder what they're hiding. I wonder what sin is creeping beneath the surface that nobody else sees underneath all of that goody-goody law-abiding piety. I wonder what they've done, why the Lord is displeased with them. Because if they were following the Lord, they'd have children by now, wouldn't they? And if you were making all of this up, you would never include this detail. It's far too raw, it's far too tender, and it's far too real. Then again, if you have your feet in reality, you know that this is the way that it happens. For believers and for unbelievers, sometimes even the godly suffer the pains and the afflictions that we face in a life gone wrong, in a world broken by sin. And yes, sometimes we can examine ourselves and our lives, and we can find some underlying sin that has not been repented of. Some unbelief, maybe, that we'll see later from Zechariah where we can connect the dots and say, oh, this is why the Lord is chastising me and He's disciplining me. And sometimes that happens, but not always. 
It's simply the reality of the soup that we're swimming in, that creation has been subjected to futility by him who subjected it in hope and waiting and longing for the revealing of the sons of God and even believers are caught in this futility and this waiting and this longing. And you know what it's like. You long for a child of your own. You long for your children to come to faith and to repentance. You long for a spouse. You long for your struggle with that sin to just be over already. Good things. Good longings. And yet you wait. This is where our story begins. It's the reality that Zechariah and Elizabeth are blameless, and yet they are barren, and they are waiting with a sanctified longing for God's intervention in their lives. And they are not alone. Luke mentions the reign of Herod in Judea. He even calls him a king, which technically is true. But he's not a real king. He's not the kind of king that the people of Israel wanted. He's not a king like David who provides security and peace and freedom for the nation of God's people. Herod is a despot. He's a bloodthirsty, maniacal, egotistical uh, puppet dancing on the strings of Rome. He was a king that everybody hated, and he knew that everybody hated him. That's why he decreed that on the day that he died, all of the most beloved leaders in Judea should also be killed, so at least someone would be mourning on the day that Herod died. It was said of Herod the Great that you were safer being Herod's pig than his son, because he killed off his own children to eliminate his rivals. When you speak of King Herod, you're not talking about the glory days of Israel. You're talking about a disgrace in the land. You're talking about a reproach before the people. A longing for Israel to be free and fruitful. And isn't that also what the Lord has promised to His people? Isn't that what He said He would do? Jeremiah chapter 33. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring to Judah health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. That's what he said. That's what he promised. And the people are waiting. Longing for the good things of the Lord to come true. Waiting while the Lord has been silent for 400 years. No sign, no prophecy, no word of revelation from the time of Malachi. And the faithful of Israel are longing. They're waiting like righteous Simeon for the consolation of Israel. They're gathered together praying outside of the temple. As the sacrifices burn and the incense rises before the Lord, bowing their heads in prayer while the priest makes supplication in their stead. Can you imagine? 400 years of longing and oppression and silence. Who did we pray for today? We prayed for Syria. 
where Christians are killed and tortured and raped and driven out of their homes. This is the stuff of reality. This is the longing that God's people often face in a world broken and destroyed by the sin that we have let in here. And the backdrop for this story is the reality of longing for God's people. And it is against that backdrop that the first glimmer of hope shows up. It happens in the high point of Zechariah's career. Sources tell us that in the first century there were at least 20,000 Israelite priests serving in the region around the temple. That's a lot of priests, and there is only one temple. And there are synagogues, there are other places, but if you're a priest, your whole life is the temple. That's what your job is about, is to be in the temple. And there were so many priests that they worked in rotations. This actually shows up, you can read it in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. Uh, David originally divides the priest into uh, divisions. And each division of the priests served for one week at a time, twice a year. Think of the army reserves. A weekend a month, two weeks a year. Uh, well, for the, the Israelite priest, it was two weeks Uh, over a year, not to mention the festival seasons. And so twice a year, Zechariah would kiss Elizabeth goodbye and he'd head to Jerusalem. When he got there, he'd get to work and he'd, I don't know, he'd officiate or he'd sacrifice or he'd intercede or he would do something, whatever it was that the priest did. But there was one job that every priest wanted. Remember, Zechariah was not a high priest, just a, a normal priest, and the one job that a normal priest wanted was one that was so important, so special, that if you were chosen for it, you could do it only once in your lifetime. And that was to enter into the holy place, to be a representative of the people of God, to stand before that great curtain that separated the holy of holies from the holy place, and to offer incense before the Lord. And here's how it happened. The, the priest who had been chosen, as Zechariah was chosen in this, uh, this instance, would enter into the holy place and two other priests would come with him. One priest would be carrying live coals from the altar outside where sacrifice had just been offered. And the other priest would bring in a censer full of finely ground incense. And they would bring them in and they would set them before the priest who had been chosen and those two other priests would move out of the temple They would go back into the court where all of the other priests and all of the other people were gathered and they would leave that one man alone and he would take those coals from the sacrifice and put them on the holy altar and he would pour the incense upon it and the smoke cloud would go up and it would fill the temple with the fragrance of frankincense and cinnamon. It happened twice a day, every day, and it was symbolic. Because as the smoke rose from the altar in a great cloud, ascending to the notice of the Lord, as the smoke went up inside the temple, the people gathered outside to pray. And what was happening inside the temple was a mirror of what was happening outside the temple. That through a sacrifice and through a mediator and a priest who stood in their stead, God was listening to the prayers of His people that he takes notice of his children when they cry to him. It's a reminder that even if God should remain silent for a time, he's always listening. Always listening to hear the cries of his children. Listening to their needs and their hurts and their longings. And it was this moment chosen as a representative and standing before the Lord, surrounded by the prayers of God's people that Zechariah saw the angel. 
And you know what happened. You don't even have to read the next verse, do you? It happens predictably. You know the story. And I wonder if uh, during the time of their ministry on earth, the angels used to get uh, bored of telling humans not to be afraid because it's always the first word out of their mouths. Zechariah is terrified, and Gabriel speaks speaks comfort. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. We're going to go on, but I want to stop right there. Consider the implications of what the angel has just said to Zechariah. Angels are rational creatures. When they show up and when they speak comfort, there is almost always a reason for the comfort that they speak. They come as messengers with a message to convey. And so they start with that comfort. Don't be afraid, but let me tell you why. Do not fear, Mary. Why? Because you have found favor with the Lord. There's your reason. Don't be afraid, shepherds, because I'm coming with good news and glad tidings for you. And there's always a reason why God's people should not be afraid. And he says to Zechariah, fear not. I know I'm imposing. I know I am this towering wall of light and glory, and I know that your puny human mind cannot even conceive of what you're seeing right now. I realize that as you look upon me, you feel the unrighteousness of your sin, and it seems as though all creation should close in on you because you are exposed before the glory of heaven in just the tiniest ray that's shining through this heavenly being in front of you. But don't be afraid, and here's why. Because your prayer has been heard. Because God the Father is listening. Isn't that where comfort comes for God's people in knowing that the Lord is listening? Psalm 145 says it this way, The Lord is near to all who call upon Him. He hears their cries and He saves them. I want you to watch very closely because I'm about to break a rule of preaching. And I want you to notice uh, before it happens, because they tell you now when they're teaching you how to preach that what you need to do is always to be able to preach so that if there is an unbeliever in your midst, they will connect and they won't feel alienated by what you have to say. Folks, I can't tell you the wonder and the comfort of prayer in a way that an unbeliever will not feel alienated from. There are some comforts that only Zion's children know. One of those comforts is the comforts of knowing and believing that the Heavenly Father is listening to the prayers of His children. And if that was a comfort for Zechariah, how much more His children in Christ? Zechariah lived before the cross. He entered the temple as the people's representative. He stood there clothed in linen garments and golden implements were in his hands and coals from the sacrificial altar were before him and smoke filled his nostrils and all of it was a shadow of what was to come. All of it was pointing past his ministry and his intercession and his priestly work to the one who was to come. All of it is much larger And it's about the Savior. And so how much more do we rejoice when we consider the fact that we have a perfect priest who stands in our place? We have a perfect sacrifice who cleanses us by His body 
and his blood. We have a mediator who can put his hand on both God and man. And speak to both and speak our favor before the Lord Almighty. How much more ought we to be comforted when we realize that when our priest, our great high priest, enters into the Holy of Holies, he doesn't leave us outside the temple. Because by his sacrifice, he's made a new and a living way so that we should enter in into the very presence and the Spirit of God. It's a spiritual reality that only his children know. That in Jesus, we have access to the Father by prayer. We have the spirit of adoption. It testifies together with our spirits that we are children of God who cries out within us, Abba, Father, who makes our requests and our needs known to the Lord. And Zechariah had the vision of an angel, but we have the promise of the Son. The gift of the Spirit. We have the assurance that in Christ, God the Father hears us. And so even in our longings, we have the comfort of prayer. Now, of course, when the angel spoke to Zechariah, he had a very specific prayer in mind. He says in verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Now here's the question. Is that what Zechariah was praying for while he was in the temple? Here he is, representative of the people, God's ordained servant, clothed in holy attire, standing at the pinnacle of his ministry, the most solemn moment of his entire ministerial life, and the faithful multitudes are praying outside. Is Zechariah standing in the temple asking for the Lord to give him a child? No. In fact, it seems like he has long since ceased to pray for children. He's over it. His time has passed. And when the angel says, you're going to have a child, he goes, what? (laughs) Do you have any idea how old I am? Have you even met my wife? Do you know what you're taught? How can I even believe this? He is past praying for children. What is he praying in the temple? He is praying what any faithful priest and representative of God's people in that moment is going to be praying. God, have mercy upon your people. O Lord, send deliverance. God of heaven and earth, come and fulfill the promises you made so long ago that have been lying dormant for 400 years. Oh, that He would rend the heavens and come down to make Your name known to Your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at Your presence. That's what He's praying in the temple. And the angel Gabriel says, the Lord has heard your prayer. And he's going to answer your prayer in a way that you never expected. And deliverance is going to come, and it will be right on time, but not quite yet. There's a little more waiting in the meantime. And as you wait, the Lord is going to send a ministry of reformation. That's how we could summarize what John And his ministry is is all about. It's a reforming ministry. It's a ministry of preparation, of dusting off the consciences of God's people that have long sat on the shelves. Those things that have worn tired through disuse. And, And John comes to make the people ready and willing to receive the Savior. Now there are a lot 
of things that this angel Gabriel tells us about John. He essentially preaches a nine-point sermon, which I'm not going to repeat. But there's a lot that's important about John. He tells us, for instance, of his standing. He says he will be great before the Lord. Now for you parents who are praying for your children. This is the only greatness that matters. One wit. And you're praying that your kids would find houses and spouses and jobs and opportunities. Pray that they would be great before the Lord like John was. That like John in his ministry, the Lord would be pleased with his work. That he would look as he does on the sacrifices of his people and smell something sweet about it. And he says, he's got a standing. He's going to be great before the Lord. And John has a strength. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will be empowered for this specific, unique ministry of preparing the people. And he's got a sobriety. He says he must not drink wine or strong drink because he's got to be laser-focused on the task at hand. There's a ministry that John has to fulfill that cannot be muddied or sullied by dissipation and drunkenness. He cannot compromise what he's there for. There's a lot that we need to know about John's ministry. But the most important thing is that he was doing the work of reformation. And it shows up in that little word that is repeated, turn. Take a look in verse 16. Here's the summary. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and implied he will turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the wise. Now that father and sons thing, that's not a promise for nuclear families here, relational uh, blood families. That is a promise for spiritual families. It's a recommitment to the wisdom of the patriarchs and the prophets. It's a seeking out the ancient paths where the good way is and walking in them. This is a reformation language. That he turns the people away from what's false and towards what is true and good and righteous. Have you considered the way that John did that? The way that he fulfilled this reforming ministry? Was it with gentle words of encouragement? And a pat on the back? What did you go into the wilderness to see, Jesus asked? Was it a man in soft clothing? People with soft clothing lives in, live in king's palaces. What did you go out into the, into the wilderness to see but a prophet? In the power and the spirit of Elijah to speak truth to power, to wake up people who are sleepy and drowsy in their iniquity, to preach to them the burden of their sin and the need for repentance. That's how John turned the people. He shook the nation and proclaimed the burden of their sin until it felt so heavy that they were practically begging for the Savior to come. You brood of vipers was his introduction to his sermon. And every Christmas we sing the carol, Joy to the World. Let every heart prepare him room. And we sing it as though we forget what a disaster your life feels like when God is preparing you for Christ. When you are in the throes and the process of being turned from serving idols to serve the living and true God. Some of you remember it. Some of you were converted later in life. And you know what it feels like. You remember the anguish. The crush, that pressing sense of a need for deliverance. What does it feel like? 
it feels like a new longing that you didn't know you had that suddenly eclipses every other longing that has ever loomed large in your life. How did John prepare the way for the Lord? What does it look like to be prepared for Jesus? Well, it looks like John Bunyan's pilgrim. And the cares of the world are there, and his family is begging him, but suddenly the weight of his sin is so great that the only sensible thing to do is to put his fingers in his ears and run to Christ. To run for life. Life. Eternal life. It's interesting that this is actually the same thing that sanctification feels like. So if you don't remember the way that this feels from your conversion days, just think about the way that the Lord exposes the sins that you still have. Oh, you belong to Christ. He is yours. You have fled to Him. You have run to Him and found grace and peace in Him. But every so often, the Lord and His Word speaks to you of your sin and your need for reformation. What does it feel like to be prepared for the work of the Lord? It feels like more longing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Gabriel promised Zechariah while he waited for deliverance that reformation was going to come, but sometimes reformation makes your longing worse rather than better. And your longing grows because you finally realize there's something worth longing for. And John came to the point, came, I'm sorry, John came to point to the Savior who is worth all the waiting and all the disruptions and all the longings that we can muster in this life. Now, the saddest thing about the account of Zechariah is the way that all of his godliness turned to unbelief when deliverance was right around the corner. You consider that it's quite possible that Zechariah was the very first human being to recognize that the Lord was about to send His Son into the world. The very first human being. And the angel Gabriel came to Zechariah before he ever showed up at Mary's house. He spoke to Zechariah of the forerunner who would come before, uh, before Simeon ever held him, before Anna ever blessed him in the temple. Zechariah has the inside track on God's deliverance, and yet this godly, blameless man stumbled in the sin of unbelief. In the glory of the temple, in the presence of an angel, with revelation staring him in the face, and he stumbled in unbelief. He didn't fall to destruction. He didn't lose saving faith in the Lord, but he did stumble. He disbelieved the promise of God. He asks, how can I know this? This is different, by the way, than Mary's question later. Mary is marveling. How will this be? How's that going to happen? I can't wrap my mind around it. But Zechariah says, how can I trust your word to me? How can I know that you're, you're true in what you're saying? Because quite frankly, what you're telling me doesn't line up with my reason and my experience. Mark that well. Because if Zechariah in the temple, in the presence of an angel, can fall into unbelief, so can you. You can begin to question what the Lord has said, and any one of us can be blinded by the unbelief that comes when we think that our circumstances are more powerful than God's promise. Zechariah should have known better, right? 
He should have remembered Sarah and Hannah and Rachel and the mother of Samson. He should have remembered all those barren women whose wombs the Lord had opened. But it's amazing how stupid sin makes you. How forgetful it makes you. Mark that well, but also notice how gracious the Lord is. Even in the sin of his unbelief, God does not abandon Zechariah, this godly, blameless man. He humbles him. He corrects him. He chastises him. We'd call it fatherly discipline through this angel and his emissary. But he doesn't abandon him. In fact, what happens is actually quite appropriate. Take a look in verse 20. Behold, you will be silent. Now that word probably means deaf and dumb. Not just deaf. Because later in chapter 1, his friends have to make signs to to Zechariah to ask him, what will your child be named? So the angel says, behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. It's as though the Lord has simply pressed the pause button. Gabriel has come and he has spoken true words, true words which were disbelieved, and he says, let's stop right there. No more words. Nothing else to say. Nothing else to hear. For the next nine months, the only companion, the only echo that you're going to hear in your mind and in your heart are these words, my words will be fulfilled in their time. And he puts Zechariah on the sidelines. The very first thing that was to happen when the priest came out of the temple at the hour of incense is that he would stand behind the altar and he would raise his hands. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. He was supposed to come out of the temple and speak God's blessing and he can't. Because he didn't believe God's blessing. And so the Lord humbles him. And it's humiliating. And he's sidelined and he's waiting all over again for God's word to be proven. But actually, this this is the perfect place for Zechariah to be. It's perfect because in in his correction and his humiliation, Zechariah begins to grow in faith. It's a very small thing, and I'll let you parents explain later when you get home. But what does it say? After these days, he went home and his wife conceived. Zechariah begins to act in faith. And we will see faith erupting later in chapter 1 as he opens his mouth finally at the end of this time. He says, the Lord is good, and he has sent a deliverer. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us, for his people, just as he said. And we're going to see this faith growing as we go through this chapter. But for now, it's enough to know that sometimes waiting is right where the Lord wants His people. Because it's in waiting that we learn the blessing of correction. It's in waiting that we notice the ministry of reformation and the comfort of prayer all over again. And it's in waiting that we learn that God's timing is always perfect. And it's in waiting that we learn that God's deliverance is never delayed. Please join me as we pray. O Lord, our God, 
We thank you that you are good and righteous and true. We thank you that your deliverance has come in the person of Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for many. We thank you that he is our perfect representative and our priest and our mediator and our king and our prophet. We thank you that your promises in him are always yes and amen. And we thank you that we have access to you through his body and blood sacrifice. Oh Lord, keep us in prayer. Keep us in humility. Keep reforming us as we wait for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.